Hello and welcome to Deb and Friends' Quest for Connection, a podcast that connects seekers and sages and where culture, spirituality, and science intersect. I'm Deb Bowen, your anchor host. I'm a spiritual educator and more, and you can learn about me, this podcast, and my services at debbowen.com. Before we begin the recording of this episode, I need to tell you that in the wonderful little world on the little island on which I live, Internet service has been crazy over the past few days and very inconsistent, as it seems to be even perhaps as I am recording this. So I hope we make it through our time together today because I'm going to be talking about something that is near and dear to my heart, and it's an overview, really, of what I'm going to share with you today based on a course that I teach periodically. And if you all would like for me to do so, can turn into what's called an e-course so you can download uh, the PDF for it. So we'll see how that goes. But what I want to talk with you about this week is sacred geometry. I have to begin by telling you that I nearly failed geometry in the 10th grade. It made no sense to me whatsoever. Letters are letters and numbers are numbers. If you think I had a problem with geometry, you should have seen me in algebra. But in any case, I remember telling my 10th grade geometry teacher that the only thing I could figure out you really needed geometry for was to lay carpet and I could hire someone for that. Well, lo these many years later, my interest in sacred geometry has multiplied and become an integral part of my life. So think about this. Our lives are so surrounded by sacred geometry that we often take sacred shapes for granted. We don't think about them, in terms of geometry at least. For example, we watch a rose unfurl without being aware consciously of the mathematical or uh, geometric principles that govern the flower's process of opening, certainly not even the scientific process. We gaze in awe at photos of uh, rose windows, stained glass windows, and don't understand the geometric principles that created them, or more important perhaps, why those geometric principles were used. We don't even understand sometimes that the parts of our own bodies are designed to function within the realm of sacred geometry. And I'll talk more about that in a little bit. And what's even more exciting is that our own internal thought processes are spurred to create duality and then circle around to oneness when we study sacred geometry. There's some controversy about this theory, but one idea is that the left brain uh, processes the logical mathematical aspects of the subject, while our right brain processes the spiritual ethereal aspects of the subject. And we'll discuss that later as we go through our time together. So here's some basic principles. Sacred geometry is the blueprint of creation and the explanation of the energy patterns in all things. The molecules of our eyes, snowflakes, pine cones, flower petals, crystals, the ratio of a bird's body to its wings, trees, seashells, the movements of the planet and stars as they orbit, and all life forms as we know them. 
emerge from a precise set of geometric codes, including the double helix that is our own DNA. So when you think about that, we can think in terms of that everything in nature and much of human architecture is based on the principle of sacred geometry. Uh, Pythagoras, who was working around 560 BCE, gave us the concept that all of the known world was founded on mathematical principles. Scientists and occult experts have built on his work for centuries. And just think about how you use numbers in your everyday language. He's number one. Four corners build a foundation. Look at the symbolism of numbers in sacred text. For example, Judaism and Christianity and the concept of seven as a number of mastery. Three as a number of wholeness and a double three, a six-pointed star for the seal of Solomon in Judaism. Buddhism and the eightfold path. Numbers are all around us. And the basic building block of sacred geometry are two interlocking circles that have become known over time as the Vesica Pisces. That translates literally the vessel of the fish. So before it was even named that, these two interlocking circles were so much the basic structure of all life that Pythagoras believed this symbol to be sacred. One of my favorite depictions of the double helix comes to us from a beautiful uh, iron carving of the two circles interlocking with a rod riding, running through them that's uh, on the well cover at Glastonbury United Kingdom in the Chaloswell Gardens. And, and I, I love that particular rendition of those two circles. But, but here's what I want you to envision, and I will, uh, during the next week, put some uh, of these drawings that I'm talking about on the Deb and Friends Quest for Connection Facebook page so you'll have an opportunity to see what I'm trying to describe verbally to you. But just imagine, if you will, these two interlocking circles, one on top of each other, such that the, um, di the circumference of each circle runs through the center of the other. And so when they're posed on top of each other in a vertical position, that space where the two intersect is called a mandorla, sort of shaped like an almond. And when the two circles are on top of each other, the mandorla is horizontal. And you can see in that mandorla the outline of the fish, the fish that became so, just this very simplistic sketch of the fish that came so many thousands of years ago to be representative of Christianity. When the two circles are placed side by side so that the drawing itself is horizontal, but then the mandorla becomes a vertical interlocking space, that represents the divine feminine. And it is that connection that in Glastonbury there is the belief that this symbol 
represents the gateway to the Isle of Avalon, to its connection to the goddess. You've seen this symbol, this vertical mandorla, in probably its most famous form as it radiates in lines around Our Lady of Guadalupe. So here we have these two connecting circles that represent the notion of both connection, oneness, and duality. So when we can think in terms of oneness and duality simultaneously, then, then we really do begin to create this circle of thought. And in the study of quantum physics, for example, we know that any given point along the time-space continuum can be both present and not present, given the perspective of the beholder, which is the Schrodinger cat thing. Therefore, we know now that there are hidden geometric patterns within other visible patterns that we don't always see. So because the time-space continuum functions on energy, everything is energy. Therefore, the notion of duality is only a part of the picture. So bear with me here for this next sentence. In reality, everything is everything because everything is energy vibrating at unique rates. Therefore, everything is one. And I just love that idea. I, I love to just contemplate that notion. And I would be remiss in talking about sacred geometry if I didn't talk about the idea of platonic solids. And they are such a unique part of the concept of sacred geometry and building blocks beyond the circle that I, I'm going to hold off on talking about them in this conversation this week. And we'll probably do a separate podcast just on the platonic solids sometime in the near future. Many of you, of course, are familiar with that lovely drawing called the Flower of Life. And it appears to be um, petals of a flower that are all interlocking. That, and they're so beautifully connected that we fail to see that they're really circles and circles and circles and circles. This is the modern name, the Flower of Life, given to a geometric figure that has multiple evenly spaced overlapping circles that are arranged. So they form that ever uh, eternally moving flower-like pattern with a six-fold symmetry like a hexagon. The center of each circle is on the circumference of six surrounding circles of the same diameter. Other folks say, where I have, have mentioned that we think of the Vesica Pisces as the building block of basic geometry, and, and note the word building block here, for many folks, just in terms of sacred geometry in general, the flower of life is considered the symbol of sacred geometry because it's said to contain ancient religious values depicting the fundamental forms of space and time. So it becomes really a visual expression of the connection that life weaves through all beings. Um, believing, some folks do, that this contains a type of Akashic records and, and includes information of all living things. 
And there are many spiritual beliefs associated with the flower of life. Uh, For example, you can see the five platonic solids within the symbol of Metatron's cube, which is uh, another piece of the puzzle uh, that may be derived from the flower of life pattern. Um, I will put on our Facebook page how the flower of life is created, beginning with a single circle, moving to the double interconnected circle that becomes the Vesica Pisces, and then we add a third circle and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and so on until the flower is created. It's absolutely beautiful. So think about this. Think about how we get to the idea of connecting numbers in a way that they form patterns. And I would venture to say that most of you who are listening to this podcast know about the Fibonacci Code, which was created by an Italian mathematician named Leonardo Fibonacci. And here's how it works. Take the number one. Here's, let me just play with a few numbers here. One, two, three, five, eight, 13, and 21. So watch what happens. You add one plus two, and you get the next number, which is three. You add two plus three, and you get the next number, which is five. You add three plus five, and you get the next number, which is eight. You add... Uh, 5 plus 8, and you get the next number, which is 13. You add 8 plus 13, and you get the next number, which is 21. And this goes on into infinity. So the sum of each number, when added to the next, becomes the sum of the next number. And when you add all of those to infinity, you get the Fibonacci series. When you divide the added number by the prior number, you get a geometric principle called phi, P-H-I, or something very close to it. And it's 1.618. So, for example, if you divide 21 by 13, you get 1.618. If you divide 13 by 8, you get 1.618, or very close to it. This notion of phi is also called the divine ratio, sometimes called the golden ratio. You might find this interesting. This is just a little aside that I love. If you add 1.618, the number of phi, you add those numbers together and reduce them to the lowest possible digit, you come up with a 7. And 7 is the mystical number in numerology. And I I just love that. I just love how this came to be. So if you take this concept of the Fibonacci code or the golden ratio, then you begin to see the basic construction of how geometric shapes were made into sacred geometry shapes in terms of architecture and music and art and so much more. So think for a minute, just envision a pyramid. And if you look at the idea of a pyramid, 
or the Greek Parthenon or pyramids of Central and South America or the stone hinges throughout Europe, the United Nations building in New York, cathedrals throughout Europe. All of these and so many more represent sacred spaces designed and constructed on sacred geometry principles. Come with me in your mind for a minute to Stonehenge, which is one of my favorite places in the world. And if you can envision Stonehenge, you will see several of the upright stones supporting a horizontal beam of stone. And you will see the notion of seven played out. For example, one of the most um, still together uh, parts of the structure at Stonehenge are four uprights upon which rest three cross beams. Seven, right? And what you can't see as you look up at them is that when these were erected, there is a knob of stone on the top of the upright and a hollowed out place on the horizontals where they fit like a glove on top of of each other. It's just amazing to me. So if you are looking for sacred geometry in places that we typically think of, one of the most uh, common places to look, of course, are in windows in churches and cathedrals. And certainly during the surge of cathedral construction in medieval times, you saw so much of this. I cannot recommend enough to you reading Ken Follick's The Pillars of the Earth. That is a mesmerizing book. So I just throw that in there as a little aside. Some scholars believe that the construction of these churches, and particularly the way some of the windows were made, was a subversive way of maintaining goddess symbols within the construction of these cathedrals. Others think it had to do with with keeping alive the notion that Mary Magdalene was in fact herself the Holy Grail. So here's an example. The Twin Towers at Chartres Cathedral honor the sun and the moon. And between these towers, the wall contains, that back wall contains the amazing rose window. And of course, as I imagine you know, in the nave of the church, etched into the stone of the floor, is an 11-circuit labyrinth. If you were to take the window, the wall where the window is, the rose window, uh, above the high altar at Chartres Cathedral, and if you were to gently lay that wall down so that it covered the sanctuary and the nave, the center of that rose window fits perfectly atop the center of the five-petal star of the labyrinth. What mind thought that up? Who created the mathematical principles and then figured out a way to execute them so that that happened? 
That is just mesmerizing to me. I just love this notion. And I love looking at the windows, for example, and looking at how the, uh, sometimes you'll see half circles of stone etched into the tops of the windows that when they meet the other side become the Vesica Pisces. Sometimes you will see three interlocking circles which become connected to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, Holy Ghost, Mother, Maiden, Crone. Uh, you, you will see um, that beginning of the first three interlocking circles of the Flower of Life. Sometimes you will see five-pointed stars representing the elements of fire, air, earth, water, and spirit. Sometimes you will see six-pointed stars called the Seal of Solomon or the Star of David. I just love the notion of finding sacred geometry in structures like cathedrals. But we also find sacred geometry in our bodies. For example, if you look at that iconic Da Vinci, Leonardo da Vinci drawing of the Vitruvian Man, uh, where he is encased in a circle, what da Vinci was doing with that drawing was working with the elements of phi. David's, Michelangelo's David uh, were all, and some of his other paintings and, and sculptures were certainly created within the notion of working with bodily parts in ratio in phi. In, Mozart, in music, Mozart sonatas, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, Debussy, Schubert, all employ phi in measures and selections of their music. If you look at a Stradivarius violin, you will see the divine ratio used as he created those amazing uh, violins. And also you will see that the energy and sound waves in music are built on phi structure. So that's fun. So let's move into a discussion about my, probably my favorite relationship personally to sacred geometry, and that's the labyrinth. Probably the most mystical of all symbols of sacred geometry is the labyrinth. A labyrinth is different from a maze. A labyrinth has only one way in and one way out to the center and back, whereas a maze has possible false twists and turns and, and dead ends. That's not true in a labyrinth. You walk one path in to the center, and you walk that same path out again. Labyrinths appear in almost all world cultures in either a, the form of a seven-circuit labyrinth, such as ones primarily seen in Crete, Ireland, Cornwall, uh, other parts of England, Scandinavia, Spain, Greece, the Hopi culture. Um, a seven-circuit labyrinth also winds its way up, although parts of it are now obscured as, as the hill has shifted. But there's some theory that at one point to walk to the top of Glastonbury Tor, one actually circumnavigated the hill walking a seven-circuit labyrinth. You will also see 11-circuit 
labyrinths. And those are more elaborate. Uh, you'll see they're, they're different design. Chartres Cathedral in France, Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, which is one of the most wonderful places in the world to be able to walk a labyrinth. Um, there's a lovely church, an Episcopal church in Wilmington, North Carolina, called the Church of the Servant. It has a beautiful labyrinth. It's open. Uh, it's on the floor of their sanctuary, and it's open one weekend a month for public walking. So labyrinth construction in general has been correlated to the flow of energy through our bodies, to the placement of planets. It's certainly connected to the myth of Ariadne and the Minotaur, to the way that Christians circumnavigated and circled around various locations in Christian pilgrimages. One of my favorite books, another book I can't recommend to you highly enough, is called Walking a Sacred Path, Rediscovering the Labyrinth as a Spiritual Tool by Dr. Lauren Artris, who was the a dean at the Grace Cathedral in San Francisco who brought the Labyrinth movement to America. Just amazing. And she talks about how um, basically there are three primary stages to walking through this amazing sacred geometry that is a labyrinth to finding center and then coming back out. And she describes that walk inward as releasing or shedding and purging, letting go. And I can tell you from my own experiences in the many times that I have walked labyrinths in more than one country, that's kind of a thing I do when I travel. I find a labyrinth and walk it in that space. And I know that for me, standing at the edge of that labyrinth, taking a deep breath, and taking that first step onto that path is a way of letting go of things I didn't even know I needed to release, a way of deeply connecting to, to myself and to spirit. And when you find center, when you have wound your way through the twists and turns of the labyrinth, when you find that center, it is a time to be quiet. It is a time to be connected to your own voice, to whatever information needs to come through to you, to be able to just be and feel and experience just for a moment, what is sacred. And then to walk back out of the labyrinth on the same path that you walked into the center, but you walk it out, you're a different person. You are renewed. You are centered. You have answers perhaps to questions you didn't even know you wanted to ask, that you needed to ask. So I can't recommend to you enough the idea that walking a labyrinth is a wonderful spiritual practice, just for me at least, and it is certainly a way of connecting to the sacred mathematics of the universe. There's a national, probably an international now that I think about it, an international movement to help people find labyrinths. So if you just Google labyrinths near me, uh, or if you're traveling, if we ever get to travel again, uh, 
and you want to know if there's a labyrinth available to you wherever you're going, look that up. I have to tell you that I, I have, uh, and this is just me, there's, there's no rules about this. Every time I walk a labyrinth, except once, and I'll tell you why, every time I've ever walked a labyrinth, I've walked it barefooted. Part of that is, one, I don't do shoes if I don't have to, and two, I need to touch the earth. I need to be grounded in that labyrinth. And the other thing I do is I wear a head covering, some kind of a scarf uh, that helps me to be focused because often when a labyrinth is available to you, there are other people walking it. And there's some rules and some etiquette about, about how you walk a labyrinth with other people around you. And I found that if I wear a scarf, it helps keep me focused and keep me on track and not um, distracted by or a distraction to other people. The one time I've walked a labyrinth with shoes was I walked a labyrinth one time. It was a beautiful retreat center, but the labyrinth and the labyrinth was gorgeous. It was made of absolutely beautiful multicolored pieces of glass, and it was lovely. I couldn't walk barefooted, and so I, I walked it in shoes, but that's the only time I've ever walked a labyrinth in shoes, so, but that's just me. That may not be you. So let me move on here from, from that because I could probably talk another hour just about labyrinths. But think about this. Um, when we think about connecting to um, nature, we can do so when we are connected to nature with just animals and plants around us in a sacred geometry way. So here's what I mean by that. All plants, animals, human bodies, we have dimensional properties that are an exactitude of the ratio of phi, 1.6.1, connected to, uh, related to one. And that ratio is called the divine proportion. Here's some examples. The ratio of female to male bees in any hive in the world is phi, with the females outnumbering males. That beautiful shell that I love so very much that is such a symbol in my life personally, the chambered nautilus. Each of those spiraled chambers, they're, they're used for air to propel the, um, the animal who lives in the chambered nautilus along. The ratio is 1.618 five to the next one. So each, each twist of the spiral in the shell is 1.618 to the next one. Sunflower seeds grow in opposing spirals. The ratio of each rotation's diameter in relationship to the next is phi. Pine cone petals, leaf arrangements, birds' bodies to their wingspan, the angles of a triangle in a pentagram, the angles of the triangles in the Seal of Solomon, all of those are phi. That's the ratio. But coolest of all, Try this. Measure from the top of your head to the floor. Then divide that number by the distance from your navel to the floor. Five. From your shoulder to your fingertips and divide by the distance from your elbow to your fingertips. Five. Hip to floor divided by knee to floor. Five. On and on and on it goes. 
When the ancients discovered the divine ratio and the orderliness that this creates in the universe, they began to see divinity through nature. And that is one of the reasons that so many folks in paganism and indigenous cultures, so many people around the world still continue to have a deep and abiding reverence for nature. It's because of this that there was such mystery in the orderliness of nature. Here's another example. In astronomy, Venus takes her across her orbit every eight years, creating a pentagram. Every 116 days, Mercury's transit forms a hexagram. I just love that. Along associated with ceremonial magic, the hexagram often is a reminder of the adage, as above, so below, meaning that everything on Earth is mirrored in heavens and vice versa. I just love that. So, so what does all this mean? This is fun. It's interesting. It's brain teasing. It's fun to look up and research. But what, what does it really mean? What does it have to do with you in your life every day? And, and I hope that one of the things that you see is that there is a divine plan that flows around and through everything, including you. And I hope that through examining some of these concepts, you might be able to see the notion that the miracle of creation is both scientific and sacred. So here's some things that you might try to do that might work uh, fun for you. Go outside and really look at the natural world around you. Really pay attention to the spirals of the seeds on the sunflower or how pine cones are structured or how seashells are structured. Choose an object every day from nature and focus on it in your meditation. Write about, you know, if you know me, you know I want you to write about what you're learning. Delve more deeply into sacred places research. Uh, Look at... um, the pyramids, for example, and, and look at some of the sacred pieces of the construction of the pyramids. Or certainly, again, I remind you of Ken Pollock's wonderful book, The Pillars of the Earth. I remind you of Lauren Artress's great book, Walking a Sacred Path. One of those, of course, deals with the construction of cathedrals. The other, in terms of walking a labyrinth. Can you find sacred geometry in your own home? Can you find sacred geometry in your body? What might it be like to delve into the divine feminine and look at her role in sacred geometry? I think you might really enjoy looking at some things that we take for granted that are fairly common and how, how might we see them in a deeper, more meaningful way. So I really hope that you have enjoyed this discussion this week about sacred geometry. I hope that you might take from it some fun things to do and a new way 
of looking at yourself and the world around you. I so appreciate you being with me for Deb and Friends Quest for Connection, both our podcast and our Facebook page. I hope you'll check out my website, debbowen.com, where at the bottom of the home page, there's in the purple band, you'll see a little button to help you click on subscribing to my monthly newsletter, where I offer random ideas and thoughts about books I'm reading or about crystals or tarot cards or moon phases, um, some things that I might be helpful to you. And finally, let me just say blessings and deep gratitude to you. Know that I am deeply grateful for our connection. And I hope to be back with you next week. And in the meantime, stay connected to each other. Thanks, everyone.